Well, good morning, First Covenant. First Evangelical Covenant Church. <laughs> it is good to be back with you, and um, I really enjoy the times that I'm able to come and visit. I'm just sorry that Pastor Evan is not here, but not really, because I'm really thankful for a congregation that supports their pastor in taking a sabbatical. So thank you for caring for your pastoral staff. Um, I'm going to be kind to Pastor Jody this morning because I know a lot about Pastor Jody. Ooh, you're lucky. <laughs> um, I say that in all love. Uh, that picture that was taken, Pastor Jody and I were in a leadership cohort together. That was back when I was pastoring a local church. And Pastor Jody, I'm not even sure what you were doing at that moment, but I don't think you were in Ceresco yet. Oh, you were in Ceresco. Okay. And uh, we had a lot of fun together. And I'm not surprised because I got to experience her leadership in that context and then in subsequent contexts as she's kind of had her fingerprints across the conference and denomination over the years. So uh, we have had a lot of fun together, but also very mission-minded and enjoyed each other in that way. I do miss being able to say great things with your pastor present because I think that's really important that he hears from me, but I'm so delighted that Pastor Evan is here. I kind of hold myself a little bit responsible for that. Uh, because I was a part of the search process and helping to secure him. And I know you are enjoying him as you enjoy all of your pastoral staff. And I want to thank you for your support um, of the conference, the churches across our conference, the pastors, the many initiatives that uh, come from our work together. Uh, I was just at Covenant Cedars last night. How many of you here have been at Covenant Cedars for something? And some of you were there last night. Uh, Covenant Cedars is a place that has impacted the lives of so many, and so we were celebrating 70 years of ministry last night, and it was so fun to be able to do that and to hear the stories, and um, I know from growing up in the Covenant, I have a Covenant camp that I went to out in California, and that Covenant camp, between the, the beauty of the creation between the gospel that was proclaimed in those places, the, the prayer that went into preparation, I always knew I was standing on holy ground. And that's what it feels like at Covenant Cedars for me. Like we were standing on holy ground. But the good news is wherever God's people are gathered, we are on holy ground. And so we are this morning as well. So would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your family in this place. And because you are among us, this is indeed holy ground. We ask that you would speak to each one of us. May the words that flow from my mouth be transformed in the minds and the hearts of those who are listening. May it be a word of challenge, a word of comfort, a word of support. God, you know what each person here needs to receive this morning. So would you meet them where they are? I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I um, actually fooled you a little bit because this morning I had that first part of Ephesians chapter 1 read for you, but I'm actually going to speak out of the second part of Ephesians chapter 1. I think Ephesians is one of the most beautiful, in fact, it is probably the most significant letter about the church. And when I say that, I'm talking about the universal church, not just the local church. And what it is that the church is supposed to be in, and who we are. And uh, so this, uh, what we're going to do this morning is spend time in the second half of Ephesians chapter 1. But it's really hard to pick up right in the middle of a chapter. 
So I wanted that read this morning because now we're going to move into verse 15 and forward, which really is a prayer. But leading up to that, we're, we're at this point. In fact, it makes a transition and says, for this reason. And for this reason, points back to those first 14 verses that were just read. And so it's like, listen, people. In light of this good news, in light of the first 14 verses that describe how you've been blessed, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, how you were chosen before the creation of the world, how God has adopted you into his family, and because of that, you have direct and intimate access to him. Because you were created before the earth, and I'm sorry, because you were named before the creation of the earth, because of his rich and lavish love that is poured out on you, guaranteeing you an inheritance, filling you with his Holy Spirit, for the praise of his glory, that we might demonstrate to the rest of the world what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, for this reason, now I want to pray for you. And so that's where we're going to pick up here now, starting in verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word of our Lord. Paul prays for us, oh, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we might see what is already ours. Paul is saying, uh, first of all, what I want you to notice, what he's not saying here, he's not saying, I pray that you would get more hope, or I pray that you would get more value and more riches from God. He's not saying, I pray that you would get more power from God. He doesn't pray that. He's saying, no, you already have all of that. It's already belonging to you. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will see what it is that you already possess. Oh, God. May they know the riches of the grace that they already have in Christ Jesus. And I wonder if some of us this morning just might need to pray that prayer right along with Paul this morning. You see, I think in general it's not that we need new information or that we need more information. We already have a lot of information, don't we? If we've been in the church for any length of time, we have all kinds of scriptural truths and gospel truths to to ponder, and I think that it needs for us to become real in an experiential way. I think we need to live into what it is that we already know, right? I mean, we're quick to say things like, oh, I know what it means to be adopted by God. Sure, I know what that means, or I know what it means that I'm valuable in God's sight. I taught that Sunday school class, in fact. 
I know what it means to be completely forgiven, past, present, and future. I mean, I led that Bible study. But what Paul's praying here is, oh, I know that you know, but I pray that the eyes of your heart, that, that what you know up here would become evident in your heart. This 18 inches, I believe, is one of the longest, hardest, most challenging parts of our faith journey to navigate. I pray, he's saying here, that this would become your experience every single day. Now, there are specific things he prays for us in the center of this passage. He says, may the eyes of their heart be enlightened at a heart level so that they would know and experience these three things, their hope, their value, and their power. Now, here's a little hint. If you're a note taker, this is kind of the structure of my sermon. So here we go. We're going to talk about hope, value, and power. So we'll start with looking at the first one in verse 18, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Now, look, our society does not offer a whole lot of hope. We just turn on the news, it does not take more than a few moments to realize how messed up things are for all of its advantages. Our society is polarized, it's fractured. There are problems that are so enormous that we've grown weary, in many cases, given up just trying to solve them. Crime, poverty, mass incarceration, racism, sexism, all kinds of isms that threaten to undo us. But in Christ, God has built a bridge from no hope to hope. And here's why this is so important to know that our hope is in Christ. And I believe it's because every single one of us are hope-based creatures. It doesn't matter what your religious views are. It doesn't matter what your world perspective is. It's that sense of being fueled by hope. It's why we get up in the morning. It's our motivation for life, if you will. And it's why it is so dangerous when someone runs out of hope. When a person loses all hope, they're in a very dangerous place because we desperately need hope. And this biblical idea of hope, it's more than just, oh, I hope I get an A on that test, or oh, I hope that parking spot in front is open for me, or, or oh, I hope Starbucks is open on the way for me to work in the morning, though that's really important, as you would note. I, yeah. <laughs> biblical hope is the positive assurance of a future reality. It's saying, I know I've got something coming. One theologian defined hope as faith, standing on tiptoe. In Romans chapter 8, Paul even wrote that we are saved by hope. We all need hope to get us going. We need big hopes. We need little hopes. Hope is the basic motivation for all that we do. i got to set this down because I don't want to wave it around at you. <laughs> we all need hope to get us going. I have hopes that my grandchildren, I'm a grandparent, by the way, I now have three grandkids. Last time I was with you, I may have had two or one. Any grandparents here? Okay, so you know how much this rocks your world. I have hopes as a grandparent. I hope that my grandkids turn out a certain way, that they'll know and have a real experience with Jesus. That motivates me to do certain things like sing 
Jesus loves me to them since the day they were born. And, and now my granddaughters, my grandson's too young, but my granddaughters who are two and four, they call it the grandma song. Not only can they sing it by heart, but they can tell Alexa to play it and they dance to it. And all the time they're singing it, I get videos from my daughter-in-law in Phoenix with my granddaughter in the tub singing, Jesus loves me. They drive their parents crazy until they say, please make her stop. But the reality is I have hopes that the truth of Jesus loves me will travel from their head to their hearts, that their hearts will be enlightened, not just by the words that Jesus loves me, but by an experience of Jesus' love. Now, if you have teenagers, you may have hopes that they'll do well in school so that there'll be a little extra money in scholarships as they go off to college, or if they're a little older than that, you hope that they do well in school so maybe one day they can move out of your house, that basement, or we all have hopes. If you have a, a job, you have hopes that you're going to get a paycheck at the end of the month or the end of the week, and, and you may uh, want to, well, you may hope that your kids actually, your young kids, will stay out of trouble in school. You, you have all kinds of hopes, maybe a career path that you want to pursue, and you have hopes when you get out of bed in the morning, and they kind of motivate you to do what you do. I know my husband Kelly and I have hopes that when we go to the doctor, we'll get a clear scan that says the cancer is still all gone. Hope is our fuel. It's what motivates us. We all need hope. We're all striving for a sense of hope. And there's nothing wrong with hoping for our kids and our grandkids and for the circumstances we find ourselves in, our careers, our health. There's nothing wrong with that hoping that things are going to come out a certain way, hoping for certain things to happen. But we have to be careful that we don't put our ultimate hope, our life-motivating hope, in anything other than Jesus. Because anything in this world that we put our ultimate hope in is unstable, and it's likely to lead to disappointment. It's kind of like what I call shifting sand. Eventually, everything is going to melt away, except for Jesus. What Paul prays here is, oh, that you would know the hope that you have in Jesus. Then you wouldn't be going around looking for that ultimate hope in 10,000 other places, but you would know the hope that came from heaven to earth. You would know the hope that hung on the cross so that you and I are forgiven. You would know the hope that is raised from the dead so that you and I can experience newness of life both now and into eternity so that we can experience the hope of heaven. Even death itself is stripped of its power because hope is the anchor of our soul. It is solid rock. It's that positive assurance of a future reality with Jesus. Amen? Amen. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened to the hope that we have in Jesus, the only sure thing. The second thing that he prays for in verse 18 here is that we would know our value. Now here's what he says in verse 18. I don't know if you still have your Bibles open. He says there that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, I have to be honest, I kind of misread that when I first was digging into this text. At first, I thought he was saying that we would know the glorious riches of our inheritance, but that's not what it says. It says that we would know the glorious riches of his inheritance in his holy people. What does that mean? 
If you look at the passage we read earlier, verse 11 that led up to this passage, it does talk about our inheritance, that we would know our inheritance, which is eternity with God. Oh, that your eyes of your heart might be opened, he said here, to know the glorious riches of his inheritance. What is his inheritance? What, what does God get out of this deal? He says his inheritance is his holy people. That's the people of God. God is saying here, my inheritance is you. You are my treasure. You are what I value. And think of it this way. John 3:16, that famous verse that most people who've been in church have memorized, for God loved the world. No, it doesn't go that way, does it? For God what? For God so loved the world. Now, I have to say that I'm not sure I really understood what it means that God so loved the world. I mean, I feel blessed. I've got friends. I've got a family. And we have kind of a small family. But I feel really blessed. I've got so much happening uh, in our life. But I remember I did not know what it means to so love somebody until about 30 years ago with the birth of our first son. I remember the day I was having a cesarean section, which meant it was planned ahead of time. I went into the hospital. They gave me all kinds of medication. It made me shaky. It numbed me up and uncomfortable. And I was awake while they did the surgery behind the curtain. All these things are going on. And then, just as quick as could be, my son enters this world. And I have to tell you that the moment he entered the world, I had this unexpected emotional wave just flow over me like nothing I had ever experienced. It was like a, a tidal wave, if you will. And I looked at my newborn son in the face because they brought him around the curtain and let me see him before they took him off. And I knew that in that moment, there was absolutely nothing I wouldn't do for this child. I would lay down my life for him. I didn't want anything from him. I didn't need anything from him. I did not expect anything from him. I just wanted him. And when they took him out of the room to take him down the hall in order to finish sewing me up after the surgery, it was like a little piece of my heart was rolled down the hall. My treasure had just left the room. I just so love my baby. I still do. And you need to know that God doesn't just love you. He so loves you. You are his treasure. You are his glorious inheritance. You're the reason why he sent his son to the earth to, to die on the cross because he would give anything up to find that treasure that is his, that is you. We have value. It's not intrinsic value. We have value because we've been made in the image of God. We bear the likeness of the creator. We have the family resemblance, if you will, and that's where our value comes from. In God, we have infinite value, and I think all of us are starving to know that we're valuable, aren't we? I mean, every one of us needs to know that we're needed. We all need to know that we matter. We need to know that there's something about us that other people need. I mean, it doesn't, it, it just drives a lot of what we do. I mean, it's the same root desire that leads to someone motivated to brag about their accomplishments, right? 
It's the same root desire that causes a morally religious person to brag about their moral religious record. It's the same root desire that calls us to, or creates in us a desire to jockey for power and prestige and position. It's the same root that motivates us to dress a particular way to get attention. These are all ways to say, look at me, I'm really something, aren't I? I remember many years ago, I was sitting in an IHOP restaurant, and I was with an old boyfriend, so this tells you how many years ago it was. If I've been married for 35 years, I may regret telling the story with Pastor Jody in the room, we'll see. <laughs> but I wasn't walking with the Lord at the time. In fact, I was in the height of what I would call my spiritual rebellion. I was not getting my identity from my value in Christ, my value from my identity in Christ, I should say. But yet I wanted to be valued, I wanted to be noticed. And I remember I was in this restaurant with my boyfriend of the time and I had gone to the bathroom and I came out of the bathroom and I, I still remember what I was wearing. I was wearing this skirt, it was about yay long and I had a pair of knee-high boots with a little bit of a heel on it and I thought I was looking pretty good. And so I was walking across the restaurant and I'm noticing that people are looking at me and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm looking pretty good today. Yes. Oh, I hope people are noticing. I hope my boyfriend is noticing that people are looking at me. And I go to sit down and the waitress comes over and says, honey, the bottom of your dress is tucked into the top of your nylons. And I, I'm not kidding, you. I had sashayed across the restaurant with the shortest mini skirt you could possibly imagine looking for value, looking for validation in all the wrong plays, in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways, man, it can drive us to some pretty crazy things. It can even drive us to religion. But God says, no, 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 your value comes in that you are my treasure. Your value comes from me. We long for acceptance. And Paul says, oh, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to see how valuable you are in Christ. You have God saying, I so love you. I value you. I want you. You are my treasure. You are my inheritance. That's where we find our value and our validation. Amen, church? Yeah. The third thing that Paul prays for in verse 19, he says that you would know the incomparable greatness of his power for us who believe. The last thing Paul prays for, oh, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know the power of God inside of you. He's saying that power is incomparably great, a power so great it can't be measured. There's no scale, there's no ruler, there's no tape measure, no Richter scale that can measure the gravity and the immensity of the power of God for those who belong to him. And in the next verse, he says it's the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. That's the power that lives inside of you. Now, I think we get that in the abstract. But what does that look like to have the immeasurable, incomparable power of God within us? Because I think it could mean a thousand different things. Often, the desire for power does not come from godly motivation, and it leads us to the wrong places, control, manipulation, a need to be right, pride. Our fears can drive us to crave power, to alienate our insecurities and our fears. But Paul is saying, listen, 
In Christ, you already have an incomparably great power inside of you. It's the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. If you've trusted in Christ, the power of God lives in you. Now, it doesn't remove us from persecution or difficulty or death, but it can relieve our fears and our insecurities, and it does make us more than conquerors in all of these things. It's not a power to work magic and to escape challenges or circumstances or hardships, but power to live in a fractured world, power for godly living. It's the power to say no to sin in your life. It's the power to say, I'm going to love someone who has been simply unlovable. It's the power to forgive someone who's done something so offensive you've had a hard time forgiving them. It's the power to live into your convictions. It's the power to say no to sin and yes to Jesus and to give your life as a sacrifice like we sang this morning. You have power from God that on that last day, you'll be able to step out of the grave, dust the dirt from your shoulder, and stand in heaven alongside Jesus for all of eternity. That's the power of God that resides inside each one of us who have placed our hope in Jesus. Amen? He says, you don't need to go looking for power. You already have the power of God in your life, and therefore... You can be humble. You don't need to manipulate and control. You already have the incomparably great power of the living God in your life. In Christ, we have a hope. In Christ, we have value. In Christ, we have the power that can cast out all fear. And Paul prays for us, oh, that you would see all that is yours. I know that you know it, but may the eyes of your heart be enlightened to know and to experience what is already yours, the, the greatness of the hope that he has called you to, the, the riches of his glorious inheritance, that's us, we're his treasure, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. I want to close up this first chapter in this way because I told you at the outset that Ephesians is so much about the church, the universal church, more focused on that than any other letter written by Paul. Jesus and his church, however, seems to consume the first 20 verses of Ephesians. We were reading all the way up to verse 20 this morning, and, and I said this is preaching about the church, but it seems to be all about Jesus. A legitimate question might be, where does the church come in here? For 20 verses, we've been talking about this, that We've been adopted into the family of God, that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, that we have an inheritance, that we have hope, that we have value, that we have power. Where is that church stuff? Well, I'm going to say this. I think that Paul is very deliberate in starting his grand thesis on the church with one whole chapter all about Jesus. He does not want us to miss the point that in the church, it is all about Jesus. He wants us to know the church is not some self-help group. It's not a political organization. It is not a social club. It is not even a religious club. The church is not primarily a building and about programs. Rather, we are the people of Jesus who are experiencing the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ and holding out the grace of Jesus to people who are living in a fractured and a dying world that they too might find hope, value, and power. 
because the church exists for others. We finally get to the word church in the very last two verses here of chapter 1. He tells us what the church is in verses 22 and 23, where he says, And God placed all things under his feet, that is Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And so he brings it home in chapter 1, telling us, this Jesus I've been telling you about, that I have been going on at length about, he is the head of the church. Not some pastor, not some author, not some theologian, not some denominational representative, not some conference representative, not the Pope in Rome. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. And we are his body. We are his hands. We are his feet. And verse 23 says, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. May we see our head, Jesus, and stick close to him. For it's in him that we find our hope, our value, and our power, and we can share that with others. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we celebrate again the good news of the gospel. We celebrate that your word tells us that in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. I pray that we would more and more explore the treasures that are already ours, that have already been given to us in the person and work of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see all that is ours. Jesus, may you be the center of your church. May you be the center of our lives. Would you fill us in every way? In the powerful name of Jesus, we ask this. And all God's people said, amen.